we've been blessed to, to have some guys come up and share what the Lord was putting on their heart. Um, and anytime, um, I, I just I share this from my heart, anytime you share from God's Word, it's, it's a frightening thing. It really is. It's, it's a humbling experience because you want to be careful never to misrepresent His heart in any way. You want to be careful to teach His Word accurately. Abel last Thursday shared on the responsibility um, and the gift it is for the child of God to serve. So it's our privilege to serve. He highlighted the fact that even though it's God's mercy that allows us and moves within us to serve, in the end, if we serve Him with humility and faithfulness, amazingly, we're going to hear the words out of Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In our language today, it's just basically the Father saying, I'm proud of you, mijo. I'm proud of you, mija. You did it. You're done. Come home. There's so much I have in store for you. Amen? We all want to hear those words one day. Peter, Peter is something else. Last Sunday, he reminded us of God's love, how it's different, how it's so, so different than, than our love. Um, but it's that love that conforms us. It lovingly squeezes us to move, to serve, to love, even when it's hard even when we don't necessarily want to. It's his love that conforms us to do so. I, I must admit, I, I did have a little trouble following some of his words. He said words like chale, jaina, kaile, gacho. I had no idea what he was talking about. I had to go home and look them up in the Spanglish dictionary, but I found out what they are. It's a, it's a blessing, really, to be here uh, today and to take part in what God wants to share from his word with you today. I pray that his spirit would move in everyone here today who's open, because if we're open, God will come in and he'll, he'll share. He'll speak. Maybe not something new, but man, we're donkeys, right? We need to be reminded over and over and over again. And so I believe that's what it is today. I wanted to kind of piggyback on the central message that Peter shared about God's love and how it conforms us. I, I want to share how his love marks us, right, and how those marks are identified in the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian. And so I want to pray one more time. And then we'll, we'll get into the Word. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for this uh, privilege that you've given me to be able to share your Word. I know, Lord, that I am absolutely, Lord, not, not worthy or capable, Lord, but I believe that by your Spirit you can use even someone like me, uh, Lord, to, to, to share your Word. And we pray that, Lord, we would be reminded that your Word says that your, your Word never returns void, Lord. It always accomplish its purpose, Lord. So we thank you for that. We pray you bless us, speak to us, Fill us with your spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, while you're there in 1 John, just a quick intro. We're not going to go through the whole 1 John, but it's, it's a good idea to have a, a little bit of background of what the book's about. This epistle is written by John the Apostle. He's one of the OGs, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's known as John the Believer, right? Or the Beloved, excuse me. Um, it's believed that it was written um, after Jesus' death, 85, 90 years after Jesus' death. AD 85, 90. Uh, John was in his uh, late teens or early 20s when he met Jesus Christ. So it's believed that he was now in his 80s when he wrote this epistle. And I love to sit down with people that are older because they have so much wisdom. I believe that John had seen a lot. He, had, he was inspired by the Spirit of God, but he had lived a lot. And it's always good to glean from people like that. Uh, there are some, some critics who say that no one can be sure that John was the author because the only identification of John's authorship was the name of the epistle in 1 John. But there's, there's things that tell us that point to his authorship. His style of writing is evident. 
If you read the Gospel of John, which we are sure that he penned, uh, you'll see a, a, a lot of similarities in the epistles of John and the Gospel of John. John, being an apostle, right, clearly says, I was there, I saw it. He was identifying himself as an eyewitness. And then the early church fathers have all credited John for writing um, this epistle and the two other epistles that follow uh, this letter. So that's all I need. You know, I, I believe John wrote it. And so let's read First uh, John. We're going to uh, cover four verses today. It says in First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So if you wonder why a lot of this these letters that were written were written. Well, there it is in verse 4, that your joy may be full. If you wonder why God gave us his word, he didn't give it to us to condemn us. He gave it to us so that our joy may be full. Now, many would see the opening of this epistle as like a, a simple introduction, right? Um, but we shouldn't miss its richness. Uh, yes, it's true. Uh, John's epistles are short. This is a short epistle. The following epistles are even shorter. But nevertheless, they're all deep. They're, they're all rich. And the text that we just read together is a great example of that. There's so much in it. From the get-go, you see the marks of a genuine believer. You see the marks of a Christian, right? Um, compare what, 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 uh, what he's writing with, with, with other epistles. It, it, it shows us that, that uh, these men were eyewitnesses. They, they were there. They, they experienced the glory. Uh, that is found in Jesus Christ. Reading through it, I believe the Lord showed me just the following that I wanted to share with you in order to help us unpack the message given to me today. So a, a mark of a Christian, a, a believer is one who first takes. One who first takes. Second, it's one who touches. Uh, thirdly, it's one who trusts or, or treasures. And then fourthly, it's one who tells. So we start with the one who takes, because without this, you can't be a Christian. Notice John wrote, we have heard. We have heard. We have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon. Our, our filthy hands have handled it. John didn't write that. I'm just thinking of my own hands, right? Our, our, our hands have handled Jesus Christ. He calls them the word of life. The, the context of, of this passage is John's declaration that he was a witness to the incarnate he was there. And one of the reasons for John writing this letter was to refute something that had infected the church called Gnosticism. Now, I don't want to you know, get too deep into Gnosticism, but basically it was a belief that the physical was evil. Therefore, Jesus could not have come in the flesh. He was some kind of a ghost or, or apparition because the flesh was, was evil. They taught that because only the spirit was good, believers could do whatever they wanted with the flesh and those of us that are aware of the flesh, we know that mainly the flesh wants to be satisfied, right? And so today we don't necessarily battle against Gnosticism, but there are many who follow the equivalent. They want to claim the benefits of God by saying they're spiritual, but they live their life as if God didn't exist. 
before I came to the Lord, I never claimed to be an atheist, but I did live like one. And I believe a lot of people fit that mold. But because of the incarnation, it being a central doctrine of our faith, it's essential to, to Christianity. Gnosticism was something that was very, very dangerous. It threatened the first three centuries of the early church. So John writes saying, no, Gnosticism is not true. Jesus did come in the flesh. I saw him. I witnessed him. I felt him. I beheld his glory. We've heard and seen and touched them. Compare that to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. I'll just read it for you. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. This is speech, guys, that, that only those who have taken can engage in. Only believers, I believe, can hear Jesus. Now, it's been said that the only words Jesus will hear from unbelievers is the prayer of repentance and the request to accept him. But once you're his, his voice is heard. It should be, at least. We should hear his voice through his word. We should hear his voice through the quietness of prayerful meditation. We should hear his voice um, when we encounter signs that we can't disregard as a coincidence. We should hear Jesus' voice. John 10, 27, what does it say? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That which was from the beginning, John says here in chapter 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. From the very get-go, guys, you see the mark of a Christian, someone who has taken, someone who has taken the precious gift of God, a gift that he's still offering today, by the way. He's still offering. His hands are still extended to us today. If someone is here and they've never taken the gift that Jesus is extending, his hand is out to you today. Will you take it? It's clear that that John had taken the gift. Pastor Manny, I'm sure you're familiar with this. He uses an analogy of his iPhone, right? You guys know that analogy? Been here long enough, you should, right? He's talking to someone and he's telling them about salvation and and how God offers it to us freely. But in order for you to receive it, you got to do what? You got to take it, right? And so he pulls out his phone, his iPhone. We're we're talking to strangers and it's a little scary, man, because, you know, I love Almani, but this is Almani, you know what I mean? And so we're talking to strangers and he pulls out his phone. He's like, you know, if I want to give you something, you know, Manny, I want to give you something, bro. And, and, you know, the person's like, what are you going to give me? You know, and he pulls out his phone and you see the person's eyes light up, right? And he's like, but if I hand this to you, what do you have to do? And, 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 and so the answer that he's looking for is you have to take it. Again, I always get scared because, man, if that was me in the BC days, I would have took it and ran, right? The whole, the whole point that he's trying to make is that the first mark of a believer is one who takes, is, is one who receives. Are you a taker in the good sense of the word? Are, are you a taker? John was. Now, the, the meaning here in the beginning could mean two things, or even possibly both. He could be talking about the beginning of creation in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He declared Jesus as creator, right? In John 
chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And it could also mean the beginning beginning. Uh, described in the Gospel of John, again penned by John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But I'm weird, man. This word, it reminded me of the beginning that John had with Jesus, of my beginning that I had with him. As soon as John heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he was hooked. He followed Jesus. He took. And, and I, I want to ask you, believers, do you remember how special it was when you first met the Lord? The, the, the moment you took his gift and you heard him, you touched him, you looked upon him? I pray that we would never lose sight of that. I think what happens as Christians is, you know, we, we forget. We forget what that was like. We forget what that meant. For me, it was an amazing experience. I don't have time today to, to share with you my testimony, but I had a gazillion sins upon my back. And the day that I took, the day that I received, I felt literally like an 8,000-pound gorilla was lifted off. Literally. I mean, I, I felt like I was floating. I was doing the moonwalk all the way home from the men's conference that I was invited to that weekend. I was floating. And, and maybe that's not your experience, but I pray that you, you would have some kind of experience. Not that experience is everything, because we based our walk in truth, but I do pray that you have one day in your walk experienced Jesus freeing you from the slave of sin. Jesus freeing you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. To meet the Lord Jesus Christ, who John refers to as the word of life, is an amazing experience beyond our capacity to understand. A.D.W. Tozer he said, salvation is bringing back to normal the creator-creature relation." When he says that, that Jesus, because he's talking about Jesus here in verse 3, he, he, he quantifies that. He, he's saying that he is the word of life. And the word life here in the Greek is the word zoe, which speaks of eternal life. It speaks of a fullness of life. When we were born, because of the indwelling um, sin that we all carry, we were born with our backs to God. But when Jesus comes into the life of a believer, he turns us around to, to be face-to-face -face now with God, to be face-to-face -face with the Father, to reconnect us with what was splintered because of sin, because he paid for it. But there is a difference, guys, and, and I want to make sure that we know that between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Because one is in your head and the other is in your heart. If I were to ask you if, if you know about someone famous, let's just throw out the name President Donald Trump, right? We all know him, right? What would you say? Well, I mean, I, I have a feeling right now you're thinking, well, of course, dummy, I know who he is, you know? But if I ask you, do you know him? I, I don't care if you had a master's in political science. Chances are you wouldn't be able to answer that you did because that's only reserved for those who know him personally, those who spend time with him. First John begins with, with John, and he includes others, probably the other apostles, saying, we just don't know about Jesus. 
we know Jesus. And that's the first mark of a Christian. We have to be sure without a shadow of a doubt that we know the Lord. I know that it's become a Christian cliche, but that's what it means when someone says it's not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's an intimacy bought through a gift called salvation. In John chapter 1, verse 12, John tells us, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. How many of you guys were born just before this verse, before Jesus coming into your life, just thinking, you know, we're all children of God. We're all children of God. Well, no, according to this verse, it says, but as many as received them, to them he gave the right, it's a privilege to become a child of God. We're all God's creation, but it's a privilege, and it's through Jesus Christ that we're given that privilege. Matthew 11, 28, 29, we're familiar with this verse. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was at Target the other day, and I saw a Life magazine. How many of you guys have seen that magazine at Target? Target, I call it Target. And it, and it caught my interest, right? Because, of course, this is a depiction of Jesus. I don't believe Jesus looked like that, right? But, but I knew who the magazine was talking about, a big old name, Jesus, and I had the caption, who do you say I am? I almost bought it, but it was $14.99, and I'm a cheapskate. But then I said, what do I need this? I have my Bible, right? I have all that I need to know about Christ. But the passage in this magazine is taken from Luke 9, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowd say I am? And I believe that Jesus, he, he wasn't really interested in what the crowd was saying about him. He was, he was inching towards the real question, right? Because they replied, oh, they're saying you must have been John the Baptist or you're Elijah or one of the prophets bought, brought back to life. But then he hit them with that $1 million question. And those of you guys that know, right, that text, you know what question I'm talking about. He said, but who do you say that I am? Luke chapter 9, verse 20. Regardless, regardless of what anyone else in life has done or not done, Jesus is asking this individual question to all of us. Who do you say that I am? Only takers, only receivers, only Christians can give the right answer. Not what your grandma or your parents or your family said, but what you say, who you say he is. Like what uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, was quoted as saying, it says, souls are not saved in bundles. They're saved individually. Right? A, a brother the other day sent me a video of a teacher talking to her students, and she ended with this saying, every one of you were born looking like your parents, but every one of you will die looking like your decision. Is that it, home? Every one of you will be born looking like your parents. Some in some way. But every one of you will be born or dying looking like your decisions. Have you made the decision to answer Jesus' question? That's a qualifying mark of every believer. Before we were called Christians, we were called what? The way. So it's a way mark, right? Of, of every believer. The beginning mark of a Christian must be to become assured of who he is must be to receive him 
must be someone who's committed to follow Jesus, who trusts in Jesus. It must be one who has taken. So the first thing is one who has taken, the mark of a Christian, one who has received, who has taken. The second thing that jumped out at me is that a believer is someone who touches. First takes, and then second, touches. What does that mean, touches? Well, some of you guys are old enough to remember that Diana Ross song, Reach out and touch, right? I just aged myself big time. A mark of a believer is someone who touches. Not, not someone, but Jesus' hand daily. Guys, receiving Jesus Christ is a one-time thing. But welcoming him is a lifelong process. Right? Receiving him to our heart happens that day when, when we come to that realization that we're tired of being tired, that there is absolutely nothing that we can do about the sin that we've committed, the sin that we carry. But then we, we, we get news of a Savior and we're like, man, I want that. That was my day when I had that 8,000-pound gorilla lifted off my back. That was the day. That happened once. I find myself recommitting myself to Jesus every single day. And that's what it means to welcome him into my heart every single day. We need to touch him. We need to do this daily. I met with someone yesterday. And this brother you know, was sharing how desperately he needs Jesus right now. And he was very transparent in saying, I, I, I forgot. So, somehow in my walk with the Lord, I forgot. I thought that I had it under control. I had it on cruise control. And I forgot how desperately wicked I am and how much I need Jesus Christ. I pray that none of us forget that because we do. We need to touch him. Look again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. In verse 3, it says, that which we have seen and heard. It talks about fellowship twice. Fellowship is the word konania. It's Christian fellowship or communion with God. Notice in verse 6, that word again, fellowship, konania. He says, you can't say you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, making the assumption that we need to commune with God in honesty, but we need to commune with Him every single day. Every mark of a Christian flows from a personal relationship, a koinonia with God first. Right? First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We, we can't have true fellowship with one another if we don't have fellowship with God first. How do we do that? What's the practical steps of having, having fellowship with God? We, we pray. We talk to him. We have a conversation with him. We tell him how much we need him. We, we, we speak to him. He speaks to us. We touch him through Bible reading, through study, through meditating on what we just read. I encourage you, just don't read. Take a moment, stop. And, and meditate on what the Lord is showing you. What's he saying? What's he speaking to you about? We do so through worship. You know, worship isn't just like a padding time to make sure that you guys are all here by the time the study starts. Worship is a privilege that we have to be able to commune, to touch Jesus Christ, to enter into his throne room, to prepare our heart and heart to receive what he has. We do that through, through true fellowship. Like it says there in First John. And, and, and we do that by seeking him with all our heart. James chapter 4 says, draw near to God and he will what? 
will draw near to you. And we, we, we come to church partly because we want to hear what is required of us as believers, and rightly so. But we can't put the cart before the horse, guys. We need to have intimacy with Christ. We need to touch him, and Jesus will then show us how to be holy, what to do. I like what Oswald Chambers says. He says, if sanctification is exalted, we will preach people into despair. But if Jesus is exalted, he will show the way to holiness. Amen? Can't put the cart before the horse. And I was thinking as I was reading this, imagine being a disciple of Jesus like John was. I, I wonder if the first thing he did when he opened his eyes in the morning as he was walking with Jesus during those three years of ministry, if, if the first thing he did was, was say, where is the Lord? Stepped on Peter, bumped into Andrew to get to Jesus. It, it says in John 13, 23, now there was a leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. You know that that's talking about John the Beloved, right? Who Jesus loved. That's why he's been given the title John the Beloved. He was leaning on the bosom of his Lord. That's what it means to touch. In Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Last Supper painting, you'll find John where? Right next to Jesus at arm's length. Matthew 5, 1 and says, And seeing the multitude, he went on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. As disciples, we need to come to Jesus on a daily, every single day. It can't just be something that we do on a Sunday or, or, or a midweek. If you encounter Jesus only on Sundays, you're going to be malnutrition. You're going to be missing out. Are, are you reaching for him? Is he on your mind? Is he on your heart? I don't, I don't say this to con condemn you. I say this so that we can pray that God would give us that. That's supernatural. You know, one example that we're all familiar with uh, of touching Jesus is done by a woman who was hurting physically. She was hurting emotionally, and I'm sure she was hurting spiritually. In, in Matthew 9, and verses 20 through 21, it says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment, for she said to herself, What? If only I may touch him. If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Do we wonder why as Christians we're struggling? Do we wonder why as Christians we're, we're, we're anxious? More than likely, it's because we're, we're not touching Jesus on a daily basis the way that we should. It says, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be me. Well, Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour by touching Jesus. A mark of a believer, guys, a mark of a Christian is someone who touches. Matthew 14, 36, it says, they begged him that, they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as, many as touched him, they were made perfectly well. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is a verse that we're all familiar with, but if you continue reading, it's amazing. It says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
And then it says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Incidentally, Jesus says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. By how? By how we love one another. John 13, 35. There is no way that we're going to be able to love one another if we're not intimate with Jesus, if we're not touching Jesus on a daily basis. The only way to love one another is to have intimacy with the Lord. I got to admit, it takes supernatural strength to love some people sometimes. Amen? It does. None of you guys. You guys are easy to love. But I also have to admit that it's easier to love Christians. You meet a Christian and you don't even know they're Christians and something, the Spirit of God is telling you, he's your brother, he's your sister, and there's a kinship that's there. The only way to have that true kinship is to have that intimacy with God. A mark of a Christian is one who takes, receives the gift. Pray you've done that. Another mark of a Christian is one who touches, he communes, he seeks. I pray you do that. And then the third mark is the one who trusts or, or treasures. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, they trust theology. They, they trust the doctrine. They trust the word. John trusted his theology. Notice he wrote, in the beginning, that which was from the beginning. He knew his Bible. He knew the plan of God. He knew who Jesus was. Perhaps when the apostles first met Jesus, we saw glimpses of human confusion and doubt that a lot of us have. But here in our text, we see surety. We see confidence. One of the marks of someone who knows Jesus is they are convinced of who he is. We need to do that. We need to know our theology. We need to know our Bible. That way, when someone in a three-piece suit or a white shirt and a black tie comes Riding a bike, knocking on our door, they can't toss you to and fro with their false doctrine. But instead, God will use you to share with them the truth. It's so important that we believe what it says in God's Word. The Bereans, right, in the book of Acts are touted, rightly so, as those we should emulate. Listened, they listened and they received. But then they searched the Scriptures to find out if what Paul was saying was true. We need to do that. We need to know the word. This just can't be our diet on Sundays. Imagine if that's the only time of the week that you ate on Sundays. We would be anorexic. We would be dead, right? I, I read something that an anonymous writer wrote on a flyleaf of an old Bible. It says, what is the Bible? Do you guys like to write in your Bible? Whoever this individual was wrote on the flyleaf of their Bible the following. What is the Bible? This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand object. Our good is its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. 
Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is given you in life and it will be open in the judgment and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Beautiful, huh? And so the same question that I asked earlier, I'll ask again, is your primary diet for Scripture only consumed on Sunday? shouldn't be so. Proverbs 4.2 says, I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. Acts 2.4.2, right, tells us the reason for the success of the early believers. What did they do? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Romans 6, 17 through 18 tells us that doctrine is what God uses to communicate the gospel that changes us from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. But God be thanked that through you, you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Amen. Martin Luther wrote a poem when someone asked him, do you feel that you've been forgiven? He answered, no, but I am as sure as there's a God in heaven. For feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart shall feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose words cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For through all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. I was saddened the other day when I heard of a recent poll that was taken in which only 50% of Christian parents accept the Bible as the true and trustworthy word of God. Only 33% of parents of preteens, that's usually around 9 to 12 years old, believe their eternal destiny is dependent upon Jesus Christ alone. Only 33%. One out of three preteen parents rely upon the Bible as a primary source of moral guidance. What does that say for our future What does that say for our children? As Christians, that can't be so. We need to be people that trust his word, that treasure his word. Another scary poll I read, and this was scary as a pastor. This is scary as I know Pastor Manny's heart who loves you, who loves the sheep, who who knows that he's been given um, a privilege by God to shepherd the sheep because this poll says that Professing believers say that they can separate God's word from the teaching of the pastor, meaning that they'll hear the word. They'll come in like you are today on a Sunday, but when it comes to the personal application of God's word, they're able to compartmentalize and disregard whatever they don't like. That's the society that we live today, right? The pick and choose, the options. I agree, we should be testing what is preached on Sundays. But if it's true, we ought to aim to live it the rest of the week. Amen? We we ought to believe that God gave us a pastor and teacher for the edification of our walk. Earlier this month, another study uh, done by the Pew Research, um, I don't know if you heard this, it was uh, advertised on, on Fox News, said that by 2070, the United States Christian population is going to be a minority. 
Right now, 64% of Americans have some affiliation with Christianity. I, I didn't look it up, but I would imagine if we were to go back into the 1940s or 50s, that number was way higher. We're already going low. But by 2070, they believe that it's going to be 35% of Americans that affiliate with Christians. I don't know if you caught it, but um, Franklin Graham was interviewed, and he said that, that he believes we're already there. We're already a, a nation which has a Christian minority because he said it wasn't about affiliating with Jesus. It was about following Jesus. He, he, he mentioned that the problem consisted of churches not teaching the word of God and therefore people not having a heart for God, not having a heart for the lost. I say that to, to, to just restate the doctrine is indispensable to Christianity. Christianity does not exist without it. We need to trust it. We need to treasure it. Paul warns Timothy to focus on preaching the word for there will come a time where people will no longer put up with real doctrine but instead will turn to those things which are easy to hear. The tickling of the ear, right? 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 13, which I believe makes the point that I'm trying to convey, that we should trust and treasure the Scriptures. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Those who compartmentalize messages, I'll receive that, but not this. Those who heap up a pile of teachers, mainly on YouTube, who, who are priced, will tell them what they want to hear, are in danger. Let that not be said of us. The mark of a believer is someone who takes, receives, accepts, follows. The mark of a believer is one who touches or tastes, communes, draws close. The mark of a believer is one who trusts, treasures the word, believes the word. And fourthly, the mark of a believer is one who tells. Because look what we read in verses 2 and 4 of John. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to, the, to us. That which we have seen and heard, look it, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Notice, John, he, he, he bore witness. He declared. He yearned for the fellowship of his fellow man with God. He wanted others to experience the joy, real joy, that they had. A lot of people, you know, when you, when you share Jesus with them, they, 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 something happens, something's triggered in their mind. It says, man, if, if I follow your Jesus, if, 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 if I go to church, then my life will be over. My life as I know it will be over. And what a sad case, huh? For those of us who knew our past life, that, that they would tra trade a sour drink that has you bent over the next morning, not remembering what you did the, the night before, for the true living water. I mean, I'm, being a Christian is hard, guys. Why? Because we're awakened to the sinful nature that we have in us. There's a war 
Romans chapter 7 with the men, we talked about it. There's a war that happens within us. We know how much we fall short. But nothing compares to walking with Jesus. Nothing compares. It's a a life of true and real joy. A mark of a believer is someone who can't keep it a secret. Can't keep it a secret. The apostles couldn't keep this truth to themselves. Even though for them... Like Peter mentioned last Sunday, it meant giving up their life, their family, their place in society, their livelihood. They had to tell. Are you an undercover Christian? Our workplace, our society has made it to where we don't want to say a word. But does your life manifest Jesus Christ? Every opportunity that you have, do you point to him? Do you give him the glory? The mark of a believer is someone who They're tattletales for the gospel, so to speak, the good news. John wrote, I bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Not everyone is given the gift of evangelism. Not every one of us can be, you know, Greg Laurie or Billy Graham. But all believers should have the need to evangelize. That's a mark of a believer. That's a mark of a Christian. Acts 4.20, when Peter and John were warned not to tell others, they said what? For we cannot speak but the things which we have seen and heard. Acts 17, 16 through 17, now while Paul wanted or waited for them in Athens, remember that, right? His spirit was provoked within him because he saw the idolatry that was going on in the city as they were giving themselves over to idols and he, he couldn't help but go and talk to them, reason with them in the synagogues, with the Jews and with the Gentile worships, and in the marketplace, who the true God was. It broke his heart. Another example is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a great example of this because in Jeremiah 20, verses 8 through 11, it says, For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder, because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily, meaning he suffered for preaching the word of God. But then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more of his name. He was convinced that was it. I'm I'm giving up. But then it says, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was worried of holding it back and I could not. A mark of a believer is someone who tells. I like to view it as a beggar pointing another beggar to the bread line. Just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That should be our heart. If someone you see has a void in their life, you need to tell them about the void filler. If you look at this and you say, man, there's a void in my life. These marks, some of these don't exist in my life. Don't, don't despair. Don't despair. This is not about condemnation. This is about an encouragement to seek God and ask him for these marks and then believe that he will give you these marks through his spirit. Amen? All right. So first you've got to take. You've got to take. That's the first step. Then you've got to keep touching. Keep touching him. Handle him. And I pray that you keep trusting. Because right now, presently, and in the future, the word of God is going to be attacked like never before. In fact, it's always been attacked. And yet it's always survived. But we're coming to a point where even the church is going to start disbelieving the word of God, where even the church is going to start compromising, 
on the Word of God. Let that not be so of us. Let us treasure and trust the doctrine, the Word of God. Because I believe if, if you do, then, then you're going to have a beautiful, a beautiful communion with God. And, and you're not going to be able to help but go and tell someone about it. And that's what it's all about. Amen? All right. So, I, 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 again, I, I mentioned that Jesus has a gift that he's extending. And, I, you know, you guys came to first service, so more than likely all of you guys are saved. Um, but just in case, just in case there's someone in here today that, that hasn't, hasn't taken that iPhone, so to speak, hasn't received what Jesus is giving freely, I, I would encourage you today, in your heart, say, Lord, I want to be a taker. I want to take. I need you. Because if you do, oh man, you're off. You're off and, and running. And, and, and God has amazing plans. He has an amazing plan for your life if you just allow him to work in and through you. Amen? So let's go ahead and let's stand. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity, this privilege that we have to be able to read your word. And, and I know, Lord, that, um, oh, God, there's so much that we didn't talk about. But I pray, Lord, that as we contemplate these, these marks, that we would do so, Lord, knowing that um, nothing brings you more joy, Lord. Your word says that nothing gives a father more happiness than to see their children walk in truth. So, Lord, I pray that we would know, Lord, that you delight in, in giving us your spirit so that we can have these characteristics in our life, Lord. If we have them, Lord, help us never to put it on cruise control. Help us never to think that it's us doing it. Help us, Lord, just to cling to you, to always abide in you, knowing, Lord, that our hearts are wretched, they're wicked, that our flesh is wanting to rule. Help us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room, Father, that hasn't received the gift, and if they're not sure, more than likely it's because they haven't. Because someone who has is sure. So if there is anyone in this room that today, by your spirit, you would touch them, Lord. You, God, would give them that vision of you extending your hand to them. And then you would let them know that it's a free gift and that all they have to do is to receive. And as they receive, they're trading in pitifulness for true joy. I pray you would do that in people's hearts. Right now. Thank you. We praise you. Lord, we declare that we need you. And Lord, as we sing this next song, we do it with all our hearts, wanting to adopt you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name.